0: Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this episode you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and introducing my wonderful friend...
1: Shane Jenkins, hello.
0: <laughs> Lovely to have you on the show. It's a wonder to be here, thank you. So Shane has come over from... America, specifically Colorado.
1: And specifically for this podcast as well.
0: You've flown um, over yes, for it. <laughs> you're
1: correct. No. I'm from, yes, Denver, around Denver, Colorado. I um, went to school at Notre Dame in Indiana. And I'm here for two years.
0: Yeah, you're with the uh, Newman Center for Faith and Reason. That's correct. So Shane is part of a, a team of American students or former students mm-hmm. that are serving within Dublin to rejuvenate the idea of faith and reason at, in line with kind of Newman's plan. So he's mm-hmm. part of the the church that Newman founded and they do amazing talks and the church is a beautiful space and they have a a wonderful choir so if any of our listeners are from Dublin or are passing through Dublin I would really recommend checking out what's going on in University Newman Church at the time because it's it's a really great opportunity and I will say that you guys also have a podcast I
1: I, I do myself and my my two housemates have one called Talk Read where we talk mostly about just things that we are either doing in the centre or perhaps the experience of living in community as volunteers which many people are considering doing after college. So if you want sort of a peek into our day-to-day lives, you're welcome to listen to that podcast. Yeah,
0: it's called um, Chuck Reach, which is the Irish for House of Bridget, which exactly. is, is the name of the community. It's the Irish spelling. So if you if you don't know how to I search was about for that, I'll link it in the show notes. There we um, are, yeah. It's great because like I said, it's been such a, a wonderful thing to discover that is happening in Dublin is, you know, people having intellectual conversations about the mm-hmm. faith and mm-hmm. promoting that aspect of it which I feel like is very much in tune with what I was hoping to do when I set up this podcast so it's really great to have Shane on and also because he has agreed to come on to talk <laughs> about my favorite poet T.S. Eliot. Oh. I've been hinting and... at a podcast on this topic for quite a while mainly complaining <laughs> that I can't find anyone to yeah. do it with. Well,
1: I'm glad that I'm your last for first choice <laughs> in <a> sense <laughs> um Yeah, I suppose your podcast has always been hinting at it, right? It's its namesake, is it not?
0: Yes. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think I mentioned this in... It was probably the episode on detective fiction, strangely enough, where I referenced how I came to the name Risking Enchantment, which was mainly just by reading T.S. Eliot poems until a couple of <laughs> phrases jumped out at me and then mm-hmm. and then sitting with those phrases until I found the one that resonated with me the most. And the line that it comes from is East Coker, which is mm-hmm. in the Four Quartets, which is really fitting because that's actually the set of poems that we're going to be focusing on. And the lines go, But all the way in a dark wood, in a bramble, on the edge of a grimpin, Where is no secure foothold, and menaced by monsters, fancy lights, risking enchantment. Mm-hmm. The actual context of those lines is maybe less than edifying. It's not necessarily saying that that experience is a, is a uniformly good thing. It's talking about the humility that needs to go along with knowledge, and this quest for knowledge is not just a good thing. But I, I still love that, and I love that the word Grimpin there comes mm. from the Hound of the Baskerville. So <laughs> with my name being Sherlock, Rachel Sherlock, I, uh, I love that kind of Sherlock Holmes reference in there. <laughs> That's lovely,
1: yeah. And I'm sure we'll talk more about how even if the, the, the literal context in the poem isn't applicable, that there are so many parts of, of T.S. Eliot's writing that just stand out in people's memory. Really. Yeah. Um, and we'll get into that in a sec. But,
0: well, yeah. I was actually going to say, I was maybe going to give you an opportunity to say, how did you come to read Eliot and get familiar with his work?
1: Certainly. I suppose the first time I properly encountered Eliot was in college. It was in my in, in my course that I was studying there. They, they had two required poetry or poetry classes. And in the first one we read The Four Quartets, and in the second one, we read The
0: Wasteland. Wow, um, you started with The Four Quartets? Yes,
1: exactly. That's is crazy a to bit me. of a jump, I suppose, but yeah. the, the way my course is structured was that we were given sort of the highlights of many different authors from the Western canon, and so Four Quartets was the first one for we got. I think we also encountered it, to give us an example of, as, as I'm sure this is a reason you also enjoy T.S.L., an example of profound spirituality exhibited in, in modern poetry, because mm-hmm. oftentimes I think people can assume that post- a certain period in human history, things start to get more enlightenment esque, they get more, more secular. They sort of distance themselves from this experience and there's much in, 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 it's harder to find those poets. They get more sparse, you know, to find the yep. ones that have that spiritual connection. But And,
0: and that kind mm-hmm. of creative genius at the same time Precisely. that the two are going together. Because right. I think you can find very powerful, but very secular poets that Mm -hmm. can be very interesting to look at. But yeah, the combination of the two goes like a bit more scarce.
1: Right, right. Like we can think of Gerard Manley Hopkins who preceded Eliot, but then even then, he's sort of like the last in a a long line of of, of religious poets, so to speak. But it's lovely to have T.S. Eliot carry the torch even further.
0: Yeah, Um, in a big way. I kind of had an unusual experience with T.S. Eliot, which was that he was kind of one of the first poets that I ever really understood as a poet like mm. i would have read you know i think most children have those sort of bedtime compilations of poems and stuff like that but <laughs> i i didn't I, T. S. tsl it was the first time that i had a name associated with like mm-hmm. being mm-hmm. a poet um, and it was because he's he's also my dad's favorite poet and you know my dad would usually mark his arrival home after work with you'd hear like the door slam and then immediately you'd hear I grow old, I grow old, <laughs> I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. So, <laughs> Love that. Yeah, and you know, he also loves the line, we always come back to it every year where we're coming into the end of October and into November, there's a line from Murder in the Cathedral, which mm-hmm. is one of Elliot's plays, mm-hmm. where it says, in golden October, declined into sombre November, mm-hmm. and the apples were gathered and stored, and the land became brown sharp points of death in a waste of water and mud. Mm-hmm. So there was always just phrases that I knew meant something to me and I knew that Elliot was important to my dad and so I had a kind of affinity for him even before I ever sat down and read a whole poem let's mm-hmm, say mm-hmm. and then when I got to secondary school for our end of high school secondary school going into university stage our, our exams the leaving certs for our English courses we have to study poets and there's usually I think about 12 poets on the course and most if you're got a really diligent teacher she'll teach you eight of them and then six of them will come up <laughs> on the paper and T.S. Eliot was actually one of our poets and that was kind of unusual and of course I was the only one in the class who was like fist pumping the Gun air <laughs> I, was, <T>. S. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I was the only Nerd. one who was really pumped for this um, and he did actually end up coming up on the paper and so I remember when he was I think he was the last question so like you you pick one of the six to answer
1: from <laughs> so it was almost as like though they wanted no one to reach him <laughs>
0: well, like, <laughs> this is it so I like dashed off my modernism essay I was so pleased because we studied we studied a big range you usually study like a couple of his poems we studied all of Prufrock Mm -hmm. we studied one portion of The Wasteland Mm -hmm. we did Preludes and we did The Journey of the Magi so there was like a couple of them in there but let's say The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock was the main one that we studied first which I felt was good because it's kind of his sort of first quote-unquote genius poem that that people recognise. But I I remember doing the essay being so excited, I was so happy and I was like, this is perfect. And I I did really well in those exams which was great, but it was funny when they do these kind of reviews afterwards that come out in the paper where they actually break down mm-hmm. like how many students got A's in, in the country or whatever but they also break down how many people answered particular questions on the paper right right
1: they give the statistics sorry the statistics of the whole exam
0: right yeah. and I remember looking at the poetry one mm-hmm. and I think I was one of 3% <laughs> it might have even been like 0.3% sure. like I, wa- I, I yeah. wonder was I like the only person in Ireland <laughs> <laughs> who answered
1: on Elliot was at the bottom I can definitely see how you would have reached a so, yeah, yeah, and
0: I I don't know, I feel like, yeah, he's, and we're going to talk a little bit about that, that he's perceived as being quite intimidating, and I think in some ways, by saying they're intimidating, you're intimidating people to kind of approach mm-hmm. it, right. where they otherwise might just kind of you're, you're, happen upon it. You're priming their
1: mind for a certain
0: approach to it. Yeah. yeah, and then, like yourself, I went into to university, and I studied English, and we studied the wasteland, and mm-hmm. we pretty much did the wasteland, like, line <laughs> by line.
1: It's quite dense, yes.
0: Yeah, and... It was only kind of after I came out of university that I then delved into the four quartets.
1: Hmm. I think what's interesting about your, your story, if I can interject, but also quite nice is that I think what spoke to you first, the way you talk about it, was the form of of Elliot, such that you were hearing lines um, that, that rung in your head, or there was something about just this phrase itself, the form captured more than, than the literal meaning could. Whereas for me, I think when I was introduced to Elliot, it was so late that I was being told of why this poem's content was significant, you know, why philosophically it mattered, you know? Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until much later that I started to fall in love with the actual the, the, the actual style or form of the language itself, you know? Yeah. Um, but it sounds like it was a bit of a reversal for you, where your, your dad was already saying things that were just catchy and, and meaningful. Um,
0: yeah. That's it. And I think we're going to speak a little bit about the context. Obviously, the whole modernist movement is actually quite complex, and we're definitely not going to get into <laughs> a really granular detail on it. Mm. Um, and the modernist movement and how Eliot, as a modernist poet, writes in a modernist way and writes in a very deeply intertextual way, where there's a lot of, we were saying, not only are there references and allusions to thousands of other works in it but he literally quotes from other languages straight into his poems mm-hmm, so you'll mm-hmm. be reading it and it'll be in English and then suddenly he's quoting German or right. you know he'll and open a whole poem with like a chunk of Italian at the start
1: yeah yeah but it's not just it's not just speaking another language it's usually from another work so there's a whole slew of you know uh, associations with that piece yeah like it's Dante or it's, or it's uh, Tristan and Isolde or something mm-hmm.
0: you know exactly and I don't want to imply that actually a is really easy to get to grips with or that everyone's been lying to you type thing.
1: No, but I think you're right. We need to like r- remind people that there, there's something about it that can be really accessible, you know, and yeah. that you don't always have to understand those um, those references at the first blush to get the emotion of the poem. It's...
0: Yeah. And he has a quote where he says, great poetry communicates before it is understood. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really key. Like, I think you can read a T.S. Eliot poem and not understand even like, feel like you're missing what he's talking about for huge swaths of it. And then he'll come in with lines that kind of, like we said, sort of lodge themselves in your brain. They stick out in a way. I read a really interesting article written by Seamus Heaney (laughs) Mm -hmm. about his own experience of coming to Eliot. Because obviously the content of Seamus Heaney's poetry is very different to Eliot. Mm -hmm. He writes about the experience of kind of usually Irish life. Mm -hmm. But he said that Eliot really taught him how to read poetry And how having this challenge of getting to grips with Eliot really informed how he was able to read and then write. So he says, all this persuades me that what is to be learned from Eliot is the double-edged nature of poetry reality. First encountered as a strange fact of culture, poetry is internalized over the years until it becomes, as they say, second nature. Poetry that was originally beyond you, generating the need to understand and overcome its strangeness, becomes in the end a familiar path within you, along which your imagination opens pleasurably backwards towards an origin and a seclusion. Your last state is therefore a thousand times better than your first, for the experience of poetry is one that truly deepens and fortifies Mm. itself with reenactment.
1: That's a wonderful encapsulation, and... I I wanted to say something about that reenactment as well, but was worried that it might come off across like, um, just saying, oh, if you don't get it, keep reading it over and over (laughs) until you do. But, but I think there is something to be said for, you may read it now and only get part of it, but that later in life, you will understand it. You'll be prepared in a different way or you'll, you'll have noticed these connections and you can read it differently. Yeah. Um, I mean, is it C.S. Lewis who says, if if you find yourself reading a book and you're not getting it, it doesn't mean that it's a bad book per se, but that you might just not be ready for it. Um, Yeah. But also not just that. Um, but an author I was reading recently called Charles Piggy, who's a French, I guess, spiritual Catholic poet. He had he had a notion where this repetition, that reenactment, he's describing, can feel as though you're just spinning your tires in the mud, going over and over again. But what we see as mere repetition for him is laid out end to end, like like head to toe, head to toe, over cross like many miles, and so what seems as though it is only the, re- the recurring of one thing actually like lays itself out at quite a distance. And so I-, I can see that here too, where for me, like I said, I didn't really get the beauty of these poems. I only got a bit of the content until I went back to them and let them sort of sit with me by, by reading it again, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, so. no, I love that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so important to understanding him. And I think we should maybe just say, like I said, I'm almost intimidated to say, we'll just talk a little bit about <laughs> Eliot and his background, because not only is Eliot himself a very complex person, <laughs> but the movement that he was involved with was very complex. In multifaceted, okay. Yeah. Um, maybe you want to start with a little bit about Eliot's background. I know you were saying he's sort of known in some ways as an English poet, but, <laughs> an, but an American citizen. Right. That's hinting <laughs> to the
1: fact that T.S. Eliot, or Thomas Stearns Eliot, is that mm-hmm. correct, um, yes. was born in 1888 in St. Louis, Missouri, but he wasn't necessarily a, a local or longtime St. Louis resident. Uh, his family were descendants of early English colonialists in the, in the New England area, and he came from a very prominent line of, of people, such as a Harvard University president, three United States presidents, settlers of the Massachusetts. Colony, prominent clergymen, but anywho, his family had moved out to St. Louis early on in his life to establish a Unitarian mission, and it was only from there, after he had sufficient experience um, studying at Harvard with, I think, philosophy and English, was it? He then took a or took a trip, so to speak, to Europe, where he was studying in in Paris and visiting north or southern Germany and northern Italy, and eventually London, that he had an experience of sort of the, the culture and and network of of authors and thinkers there that made him feel like he wanted to stay. And so he ended up forgoing his American citizenship and taking on British citizenship um, and converting to Anglo Catholicism. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, And we we're going to talk a lot about his conversion because I think it's really, it, not only is it interesting, and I know this is obviously a Catholic podcast, but I feel like when I was, at university, or even before that, whenever people were talking about him, they talked about him in this strictly modernist sense, and how mm. he was this um, person who was very much looking forward and about breaking down the old structures and things like that. And you know that is certainly true in some respects, and even just by his involvement with the group of modernists who maybe had different views to him, but were part of this kind of revising of how mm. you understand culture, but. First of all, I think it's important to note that he always had this element of sort of tradition within him and this element of loving mm-hmm. the ancients. And mm-hmm. um, and this is why he has all these illusions. I think it's I was so...
1: Say, if, if he's someone who's only looking forward, he sure has a lot of references to, <laughs> to the past. To, the, to ancient literature. Yeah.
0: And then, but literature. then also the fact that he has this conversion. And Shane, you were just telling me that you were reading that his conversion was this sort of like, calculated affair in well, some way but
1: yeah I, I think someone had narrowed it down i stumbled across someone whose interpretation was oh his conversion was twofold one of which was to offer him a space for reflection so he could escape his busy life and then the other <laughs> one was to help him blend in with english society yeah <laughs> it's very narrow whereas
0: you know and we i think we'll come to it a little bit later because i think this makes more sense in context when you've heard some of his poetry but, um, you know, the quotes that I have are things like him saying, you mm. know, without Christianity, all life is disgusting to mm. me. <laughs> mm. um, so it was certainly a, a deeply profound moment in his life. And I think one of the things that's most interesting about it is that it didn't come at a time when <laughs> things were happy for him. Like mm. you were saying, he comes to England, he enters into this like wildly ill-advised marriage right. that sort of torments his days for a couple of decades. That's right. Yeah. Um, and then, it's never truly resolved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and then... But towards the end of his life, after the passing of his first wife... He marries again, and he finds this happiness. But mm-hmm. his conversion comes before that, so it doesn't come from a place of like comfort or ease. But that he finds a degree of comfort and peace within mm-hmm. it, even in the midst of a, a kind of turbulent life. Right, right. Um, but with the modernist, he comes to England, and he he is one of the sort of founding and prominent members of this modernist movement of poetry and of fiction and of even art and all of these things. And, and he's certainly not insignificant, not only just as a writer. He's he is partaking in it, but he's also founding literary journals and supporting other mm-hmm. artists and right. championing their works. So you know, we can't forget that he certainly would have identified himself with this group and, and he, he, was
1: deeply involved and in friends with many of them, I'm
0: sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so even when we're pointing out where he deviates from what you might expect from modernism, I do want to stress that like that doesn't mean that we're saying he wasn't actually a modernist. But the modernist project, at least especially in his eyes, was about kind of trying to reinvent language to mm-hmm. encounter the new landscape of the new era and the new civilization. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and that You know, we don't have the simplicity of just rhyming things anymore, just um, that, you know, there's got to be a new way of expressing, but building on that. And I think it's in some ways he takes it more straightforwardly. There's another poet called Ezra Pound. I think Mm -hmm. you might have referenced him. He comes up a lot in Eliot's life. In fact, the wasteland is dedicated to him. I think the dedication is for the better creator, Mm -hmm. Ezra Pound. But Ezra Pound was part of this Italian futurist, which was like, why don't we level everything and just start again? Like, let's destroy all the old buildings. And yet there's this conflict in Ezra Pound because he translates Homer and he translates Anglo-Saxon poetry. And so there's still this like tension where he wants to be modern, but he can't stop dipping into the past in a way. But this sense that poetry in particular and, and art more broadly was encountering the new landscape. And I think it's telling that he was not in World War One, he kind of only saw the effects of it from afar. And that seems to have been uh, maybe a little bit more common within his group of, of modernist poets. And I wonder, is there something in there where, where someone like Tolkien and C.S. Lewis was right at, at the battlefront, where they kind of had to come back to these older forms and regain the sense of nobility to make sense of the world? Whereas right, right. I feel like in some ways, mm-hmm. T.S. Eliot's distance from that allowed him to engage with the brokenness and the fragmentation of society in mm. a different way. Yeah, I
1: would certainly say that's true.
0: And so he builds up these poems, and in particular The Wasteland, I I don't think I, I would recommend starting with maybe Prufrock, if you're going to start with that side of his poetry. I think The Wasteland, even I, when I started reading it, felt very foreign to me. But he sort of builds up this sort of chattering chorus of history within it. But what we were saying is that he cuts it through with these almost like couplets and these really memorable lines and that his use of language is it kind of like lodges itself in your brain in a way that I don't know if there's any other poet that surfaces to my mind all the time in the way that that he does we're going to take the theme of time within his Eliot's poetry is as, as a kind of base point we're definitely going to look at a couple of other things but as a sort of through thread between all of his work to talk about how he changed in his viewpoint on life and his maturing through life But they're actually two different sections, but they're kind of separated by a couple of lines. But I think the chunk of poetry that I come back to most frequently in my (laughs) life as someone who's in, you know, like we said, the modern age when Mm -hmm. everyone's busy and fragmented and all over the place. But he has these words where he says, there will be time, there will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. Time for you and time for me and time yet for a hundred decisions and indecisions, for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of a toast and tea. And like we said, a bit like the risky enchantment, that's not actually supposed to be comforting. Like <laughs> it's not it's not saying like, oh, don't worry, Rachel, you'll have time to get everything done. It's more yeah. like you will put off doing the things that you were supposed to do and the things will make you great if you are called to those things. But it's funny because it's almost like a like an advertising jingle. Like it just stays in your head, you know.
1: Right, right. But because of that, you're able to dwell on it and reflect on it and, and try to understand how these words might relate elsewhere. You know, mm-hmm. um, h- hence that sort of um, the cyclical nature of thinking over it again and again. You know, yeah. the repetition of it. You know,
0: mm-hmm. which I think is a great opportunity to actually talk about proof rock. It's the first, and again, like we were saying, it's so intertwined. Ezra Pound was the one who like convinced. T.S. Eliot, to publish this poem. He was convinced that it was one of the greatest works of genius that he'd ever read. and
1: divisive piece.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's not not the most universally loved, but like I said, the the line, I grow old is actually from Prufrock, so uh, I definitely mm -hmm. grew up with affinity for it. It's about a figure, Prufrock, who in some ways you could argue is kind of a a stand-in for Eliot himself, and it's about his experience of life where he is constantly afraid of life itself and the passage of time and the call upon him to do something with his life. Mm-hmm. I know there's a quote where it's something like that. By not being saints, we are depriving God of being the saints that he wants us to be. Like That he's so scared of both action and inaction. And so this whole poem is about this kind of circular notion. I think it's most likely centered on the fact that there is a woman that he wants to Mm -hmm. tell his feelings to and have those reciprocated, but he's so afraid of rejection that he sort of dithers on the stairwells that there's a line about that, but do I dare and do I dare? Mm -hmm. Uh, Do I dare disturb the universe? Right, Um, right.
1: And that all all the while, time is slipping in a way. He's growing thin, his hair is thinning as well. Yeah. The things that won't always stay the way they are.
0: Yeah, there's this incredible moment where he says, Should I, after teas and cakes and ices, have the strength to force the moment to its crisis? But though I have wept and fasted, wept and prayed, though I have seen my head, grown slightly bald, brought in upon a platter, I am no prophet and here's no great matter. I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker. I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker. And in short, I was afraid. And I think that is so encapsulating of the the poem as a whole, that it's this absolute agony at the smallness of his life at his own indecision at his own inability to be a great prophet this is you know these great even these great moments of crisis within my own life are no great matter Mm -hmm. and so there's this real sense of the loss of dignity and nobility and even sanctity of life that it's all Hmm. just the experience which I think a lot of us have of a very humdrum existence and how do you express that through poetry
1: do you think that he's trying to say through the comparison from himself to john the baptist with the head Mm -hmm. being brought in on a platter Mm -hmm. um do you think that that is his comparison at this point he would have been saying i am no prophet is that even though i have said things yeah in a way they won't go anywhere they're they're cut off like Mm -hmm. like i am i am frustrated at every end yeah is that is that his point here because i think or should we not say that there is some sort of uh hope beneath this or does that come later would you say
0: i think there's The hope of hope. I mean I think he's really wrestling it's almost like when you say the worst about yourself hoping it's not true Mm -hmm. but yeah it's almost like he's putting the worst case of himself forward Right. but he's still tempted with this idea of making this motion towards reaching for a life that he wants but like you said that there's Mm -hmm. this real kind of sense of frustration and in it the time like I said that, that quote that comes back to me there will be time A it's sort of like he's trying to reassure himself that oh don't worry there will be time to do these things that you're too afraid to do but there's also within that that kind of sense that he is aware that he's just putting things off
1: oh, it, it, like my one of my favorite lines or one that stuck out to me was that in a minute there is time for decisions and revisions which a minute will reverse. And so there's a sense in like, yeah, you might say there's always time to to think harder about this and dwell on it. But then Mm -hmm. immediately after that, all that progress could be ruined by another minute's waiting. Yeah. And
0: Um, it's just a constant back and forth and and with
1: kind of lack of progression. One comparison, if I can make it real quickly, Mm -hmm. um, is you mentioned that he was also a friend of um, Virginia Woolf. I think the comparison I wanted to make to The Lighthouse, there's an odd similarity to this concept where there are people are struggling for language, struggling to get out of their inertia, struggling to get over the impulse of reaction to each other, where mm-hmm. uh, I, I can't remember exactly if it's um, a woman seeing her husband, I, I believe so, but when, when a woman is seeing her husband, there is within her a desire to to reach out, to comfort, to connect, and then just at the smallest trigger of something that brings back her instincts to sort of like be rude and distant, or whatever all of that goes away immediately and then there's this constant struggle for them to like he's struggling here in Poof Rock, to sort of speak candidly or to jump past that that constant cycle of, of not really being able to say what you mean or mm. being able to, to relate like you want to so i see i see a similarity there in a sense but this to me has a i don't know perhaps a, a bit of a darker air where because time is passing so quickly there's, then some, there's a sense in which this may never happen whereas yeah. for them into the lighthouse there's some resolution towards the end of it but
0: yeah mm-hmm. that's actually a great point because i was going to come back to it. there's the element of time but there's also this frustration with language mm-hmm. there's this sort of recurring refrain of like he's trying to approach this woman and he goes like but what if she just doesn't understand me? Or what if I have perceived this wrong and she she doesn't agree? And so mm-hmm. there's a, a, one of the, it kind of comes back in a bunch of different ways, but she says, if one settling a pillow by her head should say, that is not what I meant at all. That is not it at all. Mm-hmm. And then there's another point in the poem where he breaks and he goes, it is impossible to say just what I mean. <laughs> and I was saying to Shane, like it almost feels like that could be proof rock, but it almost could be, Elliot, when he's Mm -hmm. trying to write this and he just gets to a point where the words have failed me in what I'm trying to describe and it is impossible to say just what I mean. And there's this sense of fear and frustration around language. And it's interesting because Shane and I, Shane is part of the, my group of people who come over on, on Mondays for kind of Catholic fellowship. Studious biblical scholars. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I mentioned in the last podcast that we were watching Bishop Barron's series on the Word on Fire Institute on Hans Urs von Balthasar, and he references Ludwig Wittgenstein, who is mm-hmm. an Austrian, but he moves to, to uh, Cambridge um uh, wittgenstein and he's a philosopher i read a really interesting article where it was showing all the ways in which Eliot and wittgenstein's lives were really like parallel and uh, there's no evidence that they did meet each other but they have so many things in common it would seem almost impossible <laughs> even down to the fact that they have the same birthday but one year apart oh, I didn't realize that. <laughs> in his early years wittgenstein was convinced that if you could just create almost a new language but like Clear out all of the confusion of language and clarify it and distill it down to mm-hmm. its mm-hmm. most plain and clear form. Then you wouldn't have any of these problems of miscommunication, and you could tell everyone everything that you wanted. It mm-hmm. solved
1: the problems of of, disc- of discourse, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. exactly. And. Bishop Barron says that uh, Wittgenstein mm. went on to sort of repudiate this later in his life and say that, no, you must actually plough through the whole of language, that mm. there are all these games that we play with the language. And games kind of is dismissive, but it's like that it's what poetry is about, that you're playing a particular game with poetry that you're not necessarily with prose and that, mm. you know, language by its very nature has to be confusing or um, have double meanings or, and that's where you get the beauty and also even the ability to communicate a very specific thing by like utilizing all of its nuances, mm-hmm. but it also leads to this sense of confusion. And I was saying that I feel like both Wittgenstein and Elliot went on this similar journey where they were frustrated and anxious about this confusion around language. And then later with Wittgenstein, he has his philosophies. There mm-hmm. um, is lecture notes, the blue books and brown books. Yeah. So. And then, Elliot goes on into the four quartets and I feel like they had a very similar movement in those two things. Yeah,
1: I'm really glad that you brought Wittgenstein up because again in my equally limited knowledge of him I I noticed a a comparison where as you were saying Wittgenstein struggles with the sense of properly and perfectly expressing thought and rationality in language
0: Mm -hmm. Um, because as
1: you said there's so many sort of like wild cards as, as a part of it whenever you try to formulate anything but what Bishop Robert Barron suggests is Wittgenstein's solution to it, and and you t- you talked about this before, with, I think C.S. Lewis is that there's a need to delve into it, as you were saying, or as Barron was saying, to plow through it. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I think by that, that what they have in common, Wittgenstein and Eliot, is that it can't if it can't be perfectly expressed vocally, it, it might be somewhat expressed by experience. You know, mm-hmm. and so in the line here from Proof Rock as well, where Eliot says. Um, it is impossible to say just what I mean. Immediately after, he has a line that follows, which which reads, "But as if a magic lantern threw the nerves and patterns on a screen." Um, and for me, I, I get this image of if there was only some way of projecting the complexity of what is in the mind onto a screen that you could just read clearly and, and the pattern for all to see. Wittgenstein has a similar issue where he's saying, in his later lecture notes, that if you opened up the human head and were to look at the brain and to somehow show in a what do you call in an empirical way what is happening you still wouldn't understand the actual thoughts you could look at at all the empirical data by staring at this mind and yet you wouldn't see a consciousness Mm -hmm. you you, you wouldn't see the meaning contained within you would just see the pure matter of it Um, and so there is no way for in a way to like have this light or this lantern cast um, what's in the mind perfectly onto such a screen but perhaps is that what this poetry is for then is to say, if I can't say it quite literally, maybe I can express it in, by delving into it, by, by like diving into the experience itself through description and illusion, mm-hmm. um, that there's something better understood through
0: that. And I think that might actually tie into the reason why modernism moved towards this stream of consciousness mm. poetic style, which is that the style of poetry resembles your own thought pattern, and in that way is more mimicking the experience of having those thoughts in a way that Mm -hmm. maybe just like a straight sonnet or something doesn't. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not dismissing, I I love T.S. Eliot's poetry, but I'm not saying modernism is like the best and only (laughs) type of poetry, but that there is something in there where the form is also trying to communicate, not just the words. And of of course, it's true of all poetry, but that Uh there's this keen sense of self-reflection, And the kind of the self as the center of the drama in in modernism for the most part Mm. that is particularly lends itself to this kind of stream of consciousness where lines kind of come in and out. And this is why you have because I don't I don't know about everyone, but certainly I have that sense of thinking the same things over and over again. And that's why you have these refrains that sort of keep coming back Mm. and are slightly different and 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 yet don't seem to go anywhere because you're just thinking them over and over again. The next sort of epic moment in his poetry, which we were referencing, is is the wasteland. And I don't think we're gonna spend too much time on the wasteland simply because, well, I, we could. Um, there's certainly plenty in it and and there are some points we're going to touch on but um, for me at least the wasteland what it represents in terms of time is the fact that and we were hinting at this with like the very intertextual layering effect that comes in the wasteland where Mm -hmm. he's just constantly referencing other poets and other stories and other speakers and so it becomes like this chattering chorus but it's sort of like a chattering chorus that comes from across all of time
1: yeah it's just a mass of history all crumpled together
0: yeah and it's it's kind of dissonant and it's like a cacophony. Mm-hmm.
1: It's also fragmented, you know, mm-hmm. it's broken up.
0: Yeah, and it's a question of whether you can redeem time with these voices from the past or these voices mm-hmm. from a more noble time because, again, a bit like Proof Rocky, sort of brings in the noble moments of literary history and then undercuts them with a very banal or cruel or humdrum experience. Mm -hmm. I I think
1: we were trying to make the case at the beginning that T.S. Eliot actually can be an approachable author Mm -hmm. despite being part of this very esoteric or maybe the on the outside pretentious group of moderns. I think that The the Wasteland for me kind of embodies that in a way where if if you're focusing solely on the references, on the allusions, on the language, and you see that as modernism, that sort of incredibly well-read but inaccessible form of writing, I think you're missing the shift that modernism gave at the time, which is to talk about the common experience of humanity at the time that was profoundly different from the hundred years before it. Things like dwelling in in these unreal cities, you know, like cities that are decaying, but also historical or, or a sense of placelessness when you're mm. jumping around the world um, the sense of the dirt and filth that accumulates of the fragmented nature of culture as, as like I said, the world becomes more global. I, I, so I feel like these are things that we see today that we describe differently for, for me in America, it's the mm-hmm. fact that my family lives in Colorado,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: they're from West Virginia and Pennsylvania and before that Europe. And so there's a weird sense in which I am supposedly those things from those places, but Yet, do I call Colorado my home, you know, mm-hmm. or, or people who are struggling with the, the suburban urban battle in the US might say, well, downtown is just so gross in a way <laughs> that like, it's hard to feel like a human there. It's hard to live and function normally. So people flee to the suburbs, but then there are places without identity. And so all I'm getting at is that, at least in The Wasteland and other works, I feel like Elliot is, is talking about issues that those same issues that are beginning at this time in the world. And we may not notice them if we're just focusing on, that, like I said, the high references. But they are things that relate to us still, yeah. Um, and that's for me what I found accessible in this this modernism.
0: So I think that's really astute. This sense of dislocation and, in, in terms of his interaction with the world around him. And he moves towards a very different perspective, which comes from his conversion, which happens around 1927. And he goes on to write a series of four poems, which become the four quartets. And they're called Burnt Norton, East Coker, Mm -hmm. The Dry Salvages, and Little Gidding. And those are all very rooted in places. Like those are, each of those places Mm -hmm. are a very, very specific place. Three of them are in England, one of them's in America. And... He writes these poems which are so intensely about time and God and the experience of prayer. And they're incredibly beautiful. And each of them is quite long in and of itself. And then obviously they're kind of read as four. Mm -hmm. I would recommend reading them. There's also a recording of Alec Guinness reading them aloud. I think even when I was refreshing myself for this podcast, I read them aloud to myself. I often find that a lot... Easier, and you catch the sounds and the the rhythm that he's trying to get across a lot better mm-hmm. when you either hear them or read them aloud. Sometimes
1: the play of language as well—you might notice a, like a double meaning yeah. that's hidden within a word. But.
0: I really adore them. Actually, <laughs> I think <laughs> yeah, I think they're incredible. It. And the other thing I was going to say in terms of another great way to approach the poems, there's a great lecture on YouTube called uh, "A Reader's Guide to T.S. Eliot's mm-hmm. The Four Quartets," which is by uh, Professor Thomas Howard, who wrote a book <laughs> about T.S. Eliot through the lens of Christianity and he's a Catholic and he was delivering this speech mm-hmm. to St. John's Seminary in Gordon University but it's just a really nice introduction I think you still need to I don't know how it would feel to listen to it without ever having read any of it I think it's directed at people who haven't read any of T.S. Eliot mm-hmm. but again it's a very nice accessible lecture that gives you the key into a lot of the things that he's talking about in the four quartets but at the start he actually says that he compares and considers the four quartets to be as of great artistic merit as the cathedral of chart and <laughs> mozart's requiem and he's saying that with all sincerity so oh,
1: right. I, I don't think he's far off <laughs>
0: yeah
1: <laughs> it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the titles of each of the the four poems because you mentioned that as well, how they have geographic significance. And I I mean, let me think, so Dry Ages is related to a vacation home his family would often go to during the summers in New England. And so there's a sense in which that, again, is tied to his his past or a place of joy for him. And then East Coker, to my understanding, is where his ancestral family is from in England and where he's buried. Exactly. Again, returning in a sense to where Mm -hmm. he has come from yeah uh, he with quotes i guess (laughs) but yeah do you know anything about the other two as well do they relate to that that sort of sense of identity and his own life
0: i can't remember what exactly the connection with Bernd norton is Mm -hmm. i know it was a A country estate which the owner burned down himself. Mm. But the Little Gidding was a community and actually in the video I was just describing, he goes into this in a a good bit of detail. It was a community that was attempted to set up of lay people, single and married, who would live the canonical hours Mm. of the liturgy. And so when there's a section in Little Gidding where he talks about if you were to come from any direction in any season, it would always be this way. Mm -hmm. That sense of placement of this community living out the different hours of prayer and the different hours of activity. So I know that, but I thought maybe I should just read some of the sections from the Four Quartets, particularly about time, because that's sort of the ever-present theme between all four of them. Um, and Burnt Norton, which is the first one, and was written before he had the idea to write four. So mm. it was originally just a poem and then it became part of four poems, but it begins with... Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future is contained in time past. <laughs> Which actually I think is a really Newman thing. Is it I think is it Newman who says that like the all of the trees encapsulated in the acorn that possibly this sense that both your future and your past are, are contained within a single moment? Right,
1: but but mysteriously though, because in a way mm-hmm. only only the present exists to us and yet the other two seem to be entirely linked to
0: it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he says that, and he kind of repudiates what he says about dithering and Mm. this sense of like possibility, but the lack of possibility that's in Prufrock, where the next lines, he kind of goes on to say, if all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been is an abstraction, remaining a perpetual possibility, only in a world of speculation. So he is at this point kind of casting off this, clinging to all of the possibilities of life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it's it's such an interesting thing to have as your sort of opening statement for this poem and then ultimately for all four of the poems.
1: Yeah, it's another passage from this poem that I think relates to this and how time is in some way at the centre of what this poem is going to be about. It goes, at the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards. At the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement. And do not call it fixity, or past and future are gathered, and their movement from nor towards neither ascent nor decline except for the point, the still point. There would be no dance, there is only the dance. I can only say there we have been, but I cannot say where, and I cannot say how long, for that is to place it in time. Mm -hmm. And And I think the reason I bring this up is that there's a few passages for me that stick out as though they're just an underpinning of these other musings he's having, an underpinning of the fact that as you say, that if all all time is in a way what we're obsessed with, where where it is contained, where it exists, that if we can't access that future or the past anymore, and we're, we're left with what we can access in the present, there's something about that space being the still point of all the rest that is moving and fluctuating. And, mm-hmm. and he's going to get at as well, someone who embodies that still point, in, in my opinion. But I, I think that's a lovely point to make that where where you mentioned in Rock, there's a despair in the sense that things are always moving and constantly changing and and at the beginning of Four Quartets there's a reference to Heraclitus right who Mm -hmm. has the sense of the of of everything always being in flux and change that here he offers something that pierces through it something that is at the center of the wheel which I think is a lovely image but
0: (laughs) yeah I was actually thinking it's funny because in that line about at the still point there is dance but neither arrest rest nor movement mm-hmm. and he it's in East Coker I don't know whether that's the same poem but he he goes on to have a line where he says so the darkness shall be the light and the stillness the dancing mm-hmm. at some point all of the distraction and he talks a lot about distraction in the poems mm-hmm. that like all of that fades away and that actually the moment of stillness will be the moment of ultimate joy and and, and expression
1: right and and that Coexistence of paradoxes. We're going to see in place in this poem the yeah. introduction of paradox. It is it's I don't want to just jump to it immediately, but it's so profoundly I think a Christian element or a Christian mm-hmm. philosophy. The the marriage of of two paradoxical truths in a way to get at something that's beyond them or deeper Mm -hmm. than them right the notion that there is both temporality and eternity coexistent in a way or the sense of an irredeemable or unredeemable time and existence that is supposedly redeemed through embodying that paradox right yeah
0: and i think and particularly since we mentioned him but didn't actually quote him in the we were talking about the course on Hunsers when mm-hmm. Balthazar. Balthazar has that quote where he says, Christmas is not an event within history, but rather the invasion of time mm-hmm. by eternity.
1: Mm-hmm. It is an eternal reality in in a temporal context. Yeah, Yeah. and (laughs) I think
0: that is so at the heart of what the four quartets are about because he really tries to express how while being informed by tradition, which is something we'll come back to, and he doesn't cast off the world, but that the moment that we are looking for is the present moment, which is also the only moment that has any kind of Mm -hmm. divinity in it because that is the moment that Jesus enters into, which Mm -hmm. is the present Mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fitting and we're actually going to talk a little bit about when you say paradoxes i think of chesterton and when we talk about this i think of lewis (laughs) both of them started off as really at odds with with elliot and as he moved on in his journey and they kind of came to know him a bit better they sort of reconciled their their notions so i think it's very fitting that i might be quoting c.s lewis but of course i must quote the screw tape Letters. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. Um, as always, it's from the, the perspective of the devils. But it, they say, The humans live in time, but our enemy destines them for eternity. He therefore, I believe, wants them to attend chiefly to two things, to eternity itself and and to that point of time which they call the present. For the present is the point at which time touches eternity. Of the present moment, and of it only, humans have an experience analogous to the experience which our enemy has of reality as a whole. In it alone, freedom and actuality are offered them. He would therefore have them continually concerned either with eternity, which means being concerned with him, or with the present, either meditating on their eternal union with or separation from himself, or else obeying the present voice of conscience, bearing the present cross, receiving the present grace, giving thanks for the present pleasure. Our business is to get them away from the eternal and from the present. With this in view, we sometimes tempt a human, say a widow or a scholar, to live in the past. But this is of limited value, for they have some real knowledge of the past, and it has a determinate nature and, to that extent, resembles eternity. It is far better to make them live in the future. Biological necessity makes all their passions point in that direction already, so that thought about the future inflames hope and fear. Also, it is unknown to them, so that in making them think about it, we make them think of unrealities. In a word, the future is, of all things, the least like eternity. It is the most completely temporal part mm-hmm. of time. Mm-hmm. And I think that is so completely in line with what Eliot is talking about in 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 these poems. I think it's in the the Dry Salvages. I'll get the exact quote now, where he warns against, and I'm sure as as mm-hmm. Eliot would warn against the tendency, especially as he says in times of turmoil, to look towards soothsaying and trying to tell the future. He goes on to do this like really long enumeration. So he goes. To communicate with Mars, converse with spirits, to report the behaviour of the sea monster, to describe the horoscope, haruspicate or scry, observe disease and signatures, evoke biography from the wrinkles of the palm and tragedy from fingers, release omens by sortilage or tea leaves, riddle the inevitable with playing cards, fiddle with pentagrams or barbiturate assets or dissect the recurrent image of the preconscious terrors to explore the womb or the tomb or dreams. These are all usual pastimes and drugs and features of the press. That's so funny to me. He just is so dismissive. He's like, mm, could mm. there be anything lower? These are usual pastimes, <laughs> and drugs, and features of the press. Right. They're,
1: they're, I don't know what to call them, but they're the um, like the trashy magazine like, yeah. focuses of the time.
0: Yeah, and then mm. he says and will always be, some of them especially when there is distress of nations and perplexity, whether on the shores of Asia or in the Edgware Road. Men's curiosity searches past and future and clings to that dimension. But to apprehend the point of intersection of the timeless with time is an occupation for the saint. No occupation either, but something given and taken in a lifetime's death in love, ardour and selflessness, and self-surrender. For most of us, there is only the unattended moment, the moment in and out of time, but you are the music while the music lasts. There are only hints and guesses, hints followed by guesses, and the rest is prayer, observance, discipline, thought, and action. The hint half guessed, the gift half understood, is incarnation. I mean, I know it's quite a
1: long quote. Oh, no, 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 but I, there's so much to delve into there. One... He's he's so right to say that people, whether or not they're they're aware of the solution, all are aware of the of the, the obsession with the problem. People are yeah. are so worried. Sorry, it's, it's something that your your man was talking about in the lecture, which I will steal. <laughs> um, is that in a way humans uniquely are obsessed with that past and future? They mm-hmm. uniquely stand out as conscious beings, so to speak, of that are that that they can be aware of these things, and and in a way plagued by them because. They're constantly wondering what they mean for their lives, both the future, as you were saying, or, or C.S. Lewis said, it's the most unreal. That one's the most tricky because you can be so caught up in what you want to happen or what might happen that you're really living in a non-existence. Mm. Um, but with the past, it's more that you're you're obsessing over something which is true, did exist, but can't really be affected anymore. Which I, I guess that's kind of clear. But I think what I'm getting at is that he's right to say people recognize that this is a core part of maybe human frustration or human existence or, or human longing in some way. Mm-hmm. And yet for him, or the best answer to that, the best, I don't know, the best event that seems to cut through it and allow people to transcend that is the Christian truth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it is, is the one, the capital I incarnation, who goes from eternal to temporal, who invites us into a relationship in the present moment with eternity, and, or, and that's for me at least what I get. And I, I was looking on the side while you're reading that, uh, the Saint Augustine passage from the Confessions in which he talks about time. But he has two funny lines I'll read. One of which is, when, he, when he's thinking about the question of time, he's saying, "Oh, if I was supposed to define time, he says, if no one asks me, I know, as in I know what it is. But if I wish to explain it to him who asks, I know not." <laughs> I, I, I really. <laughs> that's, that's so relatable. <laughs> right, right. And then, and then further down, he speaks about in the obsession with past and future, as he wishes to sort of understand where these two realms exist, he says, if there are times past and future, I desire to know where they are. (laughs) (laughs) But if as yet I do not succeed, I still know wherever they are, that they are not there as future or past, but as present. I'll I'll paraphrase briefly. He says that past moments, though they did at one point exist, only exist in the present because they exist in the memory, like the Mm -hmm. recalling of the present and future moments as well though they don't exist at all, seem to exist in preconception, um, even though, again, they don't exist. So it's, it's always just stunning how so many Christian thinkers seem to all fit into this question of time. I think it's so pertinent because we have an eternal being that in a way is asking us to live in a temporal context. And that itself is already troubling or problematic or, or seems to be a categorical separation of us from our creator. Right. Yeah. Um, but that's why T.S. Eliot hones in on this issue or mm-hmm. this problem, this question is because he knows it affects all humans, but that it's something which in theory or in, in his experience can be reconciled or can be redeemed in contrast to what he says at the beginning unredeemable yeah. time, you know?
0: Yeah. That's really it. And that he, I think that's what's so comforting and beautiful about the four quartets is this sense of redemption and peace that comes in it. Mm-hmm. I know someone, there was one uh, place, I think it might have even just been on the Wikipedia page, where they were saying how it's almost like a Dante moment. And actually, Burnt Norton mm-hmm. opens mm-hmm. near the start with this, like, I have had 20 years, I think he's 40 at the stage, you know, mm-hmm. like, it's sort of useless 20 years that I kind of wasted. And it's very reminiscent of, like, I'm at the midpoint of my life mm-hmm. that opens the Inferno. But they drew a correlation between those early poems like Proof Rock and um, The Wasteland as being the Inferno and then maybe Mm -hmm. they said Ash Wednesday I would probably put the Journey of the Magi in there as Mm -hmm. the sort of Purgatorio ones and then Mm -hmm. these last four poems are sort of his paradiso. And he doesn't right. really write much poetry afterwards. And it's funny because he has this refrain of like, the end is the beginning and the beginning is the end. And to make an end is to make a beginning. Right. But in some respects, this kind of is the end of his his poetry. He kind of focuses more on theater. He had this great desire to bring back verse theater and had such a love mm-hmm. for it, which to me makes it even more upsetting that the theater he's most associated with now is Cats. <laughs> wow <laughs> <A> legacy tarnished <laughs> I mean I know there's some people like cats I know, and kidding, I, this yeah. is this is aside from the movie that just came out which I'm not sure anyone liked except in a sort of Shadenfreude <laughs> kind of way but I'm not really a particularly big fan of cats but also just that it, it's so it's so frustrating to me that this is the thing that most people seem to know him for, which is that he wrote a poem once, which was a perfectly fine comic poem. Right, right. Um, it ends up
1: being his entire, supposedly his entire pop legacy. Yeah, you know? it's, like...
0: <laughs> it's so upsetting. But to, to contrast that, in the four quartets, he ends Little Gidding, which is the last poem, mm. which this mm. uh, is, I find it really moving. I almost like, I'm a bit disappointed in myself that I, uh-huh. like, my voice often shakes when I recite <laughs> like these lines. And it's so, like... A, you know get a grip
1: I mean, there's something about it that is, is i don't know what to say but it does kind of bring you to tears in a way because he's described this i don't want to say despair but the sense of feeling lost or stuck or in a rut that you can't quite escape but yet you're, you're told to live in and keep walking down mm-hmm. and then for me little kidding offers a sense of which all is made right and that you can kind of understand that which was so problematic you know, yeah. in a different way, you know. Yeah. And, and so that's why it's so
0: meaningful. Or, or like, and he has the Julian of Norwich quote that he comes mm. back to over and over again, which is "All shall be well." Right. But the last two stanzas of the poem are: "We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started, and know the place for the first time, through the unknown, unremembered gate, when the last of Earth left to discover." is that which was the beginning at the source of the longest river the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree not known because not looked for but heard half heard in the stillness between two waves of the sea quick now here now always a condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well when the tongues of flames are enfolded into the knotted crown of fire and the fire and the rose are one and again those images of fire and and roses as christian imageries are, are woven mm-hmm. throughout the four poems mm-hmm. but i just there's almost to me like a sense of and it, it's not it's the, it's almost the reverse of lord of the rings where they come back to the shire and the shire is ruined mm-hmm. but they're mm-hmm. the that part in all of those quest stories where you arrive back home and suddenly understand what it was that you started out from in the first place. Right, right. Um, I I don't know, there's a real emotion to that, that when, you know, when we die, the end is our beginning, which is what he's saying, that we will have a greater knowledge of what the beginning was to begin with.
1: Right, And, and I mean... There's so many layers I can delve into this here. I'll read another passage that deals with the end and the beginning really quick, though, before I do. Um, But just before the the stanzas you read, there's one that goes, um, What we call the beginning is often the end, and to make an end is to make a beginning. Every phrase and every sentence is an end and a beginning. Every poem an epitaph, and any action is a step to the block, to the fire, down to the sea's throat, or to an illegible stone, and that is where we start. We die with the dying, see they depart, and we go with them. We are born with the dead. See, they return and bring us with them. The moment of the rose and the moment of the yew tree are of equal duration.
0: I love that. That like every step and every block, and that's that's what we were saying. That as we move towards the the end, and even if we think of the word end, you can also think of the word purpose or teleos, mm-hmm. That like sense of like what our deepest meaning is. The end of our 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 expression of ourselves is as well.
1: Right. I, I was I was going to get at the sense in which the end looking like the beginning has to do with the fact that for us, there's a sense of what you're returning to where you came from, returning mm-hmm. to unity with that creator, so to speak. Yeah. It, there's like an arc of both humanity and an arc of your life. And it's also embodied in, in the arc of the acorn you were talking about, where there's an acorn whose end is to make more acorns. You know? yeah. um, and so it's funny that, that he has this phrasing because there's a, a lesser known C.S. Lewis work called The Pilgrim's Regress. Oh, yes, um, yeah. Which is an aversion on The Pilgrim's Progress. But but that aside, he has a similar journey where it's only by... Um, he, he sees a mountain from his doorstep. Should I, should I spoil this the story here? <laughs>
0: and the end is where he starts from.
1: Pretty much, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the end movie. is that uh, the mountain was behind his house and he was looking around the world. <laughs> um, but he, that's, that's pretty much the, the, the premise is that you've gone through the path but you see things differently and that you can recognize that from where you began um, actually is like the place to return to.
0: That's why I think Mm -hmm. these four poems are so powerful is because they have this catholic and christian understanding and i will use the word catholic he was anglo-catholic which meant that he remained within the sort of anglican church but with the let's say the 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 bells and smells of of catholicism (laughs) he never he never kind of strayed towards catholicism i saw one point which was made about this particular choice of his which was that he saw catholicism as such a small sect within england that he was he didn't want to become sectarian as it were he Mm. wasn't about joining a tiny little club that nobody was in right. but rather he about to
1: stay in, in conversation with all those people he was like
0: and and that for. and that england should ultimately be redeemed mm-hmm. by the full flowering of its expression right. but but like i said so he, his understanding of things was very catholic and i think he it even refers to him going to as going to confession i'm afraid i <laughs> I, I should be more knowledgeable about exactly what the liturgies and rituals of of Anglo-Catholicism are, but let's say at least to a very large degree they look a lot like Catholicism, but his, his conversion is so moving to me and moving because as we said earlier like Shane is hearing that it was uh it was calculated or that it was designed to make him more likable in some ways and in some ways i would argue i don't know maybe he was trying to move into a sort of more middle class
1: maybe it was a move up from unitarianism i don't, I
0: don't know <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but he, he certainly lost Or had his friendship with a lot of his friends shaken through this. Mm -hmm. And in in particular, Virginia Woolf. And she has this really... I've never quite forgiven her for it. She has this really distressing quote, which she wrote to someone. And she said, I've had a most shameful and distressing interview with poor dear Tom Elliott, who may be called dead to us all from this day forward. He has become an Anglo-Catholic, believes in God and immortality, and goes to church. I was really shocked. A corpse would seem to me more credible than he is. I mean, there's something obscene about a living person sitting by the fire and believing in God. It's really shocking to her. I
1: wonder, it is a rather sad and souring line, I'll admit. I wonder if something about that is as a fear or a feeling of him sort of abandoning or rising above the, mm-hmm. the just the mundane human experience that others have. And not that. He doesn't experience it too but that he's in a way separating himself out from them and that is what what yeah. claiming to be a believer does it does separate you from from all else but definitely, I, I think maybe there is a sense in which the whole thing about him being able to sit by the fire and saying he believes in God that to her they might seem contradictory where he's both present in a situation and yet claiming to belong mm-hmm. outside of it
0: yeah. you know and he, he actually has two great quotes on, around this himself about his own experience of religion. And sure. uh, what I will also say is that like sometimes when you read about conversions, people have conversions and they stray again and come back. And like, I think mm-hmm. that's kind of the experience for most people. And I'm sure he had that emotionally within himself throughout his own life. But there's no question about how dedicated he was to it. He became a, a daily communicant. He, he was deeply involved in the church and he was very much ardent about his belief and so he has these these two quotes from a letter to Paul Elmer Moore and he says he's talking about people who seem to have no need of religion and he says they may be very good or very happy they simply seem to miss nothing to be unconscious of any void the void I find in the middle of all human happiness and all human relations Mm -hmm. and which there is only one thing left to fill I am one whom this sense of void tends to drive towards asceticism or sensuality, and only Christianity helps to reconcile me to life, which is otherwise disgusting. But the people I have in mind, the good ones, are much more puzzling than the bad. I have an easy and innocent acceptance of life that I simply cannot understand. It is more bewildering Mm. than the problem of evil. It's quite a claim. And uh, then he goes on to say, To me, religion has brought at least the perception of something above morals, and therefore extremely terrifying. It has brought me not to happiness, but the sense of something above happiness, and therefore more terrifying than ordinary pain and misery, the very dark and the desert. And I think it's so interesting that Eliot seems to be on this constant journey into the desert and it's funny because C.S. Lewis has a quote about him which is actually the exact reverse that his modernism was him going into the desert mm. because they I think Elliot kind of became more amenable to, to Milton when he, he got older but he's, sure. he certainly upset Lewis quite a lot by being a detractor of Milton at least earlier <laughs> but Lewis has this quite insightful quote about him and this was when i think they were definitely butting heads and and not being particularly fond of each other but lewis is using this metaphor of milton being like the chinese wall that within it is all civilization and outside Mm, is is mm, this kind of unknown so lewis says all are outside the chinese wall of milton's verse because they are barbarians who cannot get in but others have gone out beyond it of their own will in order to fast and pray in the wilderness (laughs) So in some ways, there's even within Eliot, there's this constant sense of exile of whether he's traveling interiorly into a sort of place beyond just good or bad in terms of your daily interactions into a higher level, which is the the kind of Christian Mm. expectation of virtue. Or it's in the way that he expresses his modernism, where he's going out into the fringes of civilization to create these poems. That's stunning. I really love that
1: quote. And it does give
0: almost like a sanctifying sense to to that going out. Yeah. And I think it's funny because, like I said, clearly I love Lewis and Chesterton and as we, I was explaining to Shane, that they were very much at odds with Elliot, particularly in the early days. And both of them wrote these quite scathing parodies <laughs> of the opening of the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, which is quite famous. Let us go then, you and I, as the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. And Chesterton wrote this, like, parody version of it which you can't see obviously when we're reading it out but if you can imagine almost every second word being on another line at a different indentation um it looks almost like a like a lightning bolt the whole way down the page but he says now you mention it of course the sky is like a large mouth shown to a dentist and i never noticed a little thing like that but i can't help wishing you got more fun out of it You seem to have taken quite a dislike to things. They seem to make you jump and double up unexpectedly when you write, like other poets, on subjects not entirely novel, such as, for instance, the sea. It is mostly about seasickness. (laughs) As you say, it is the new movement, the emetic ecstasy. Um, And Lewis had a line where he said... For twenty years, I have stared my level best to see if evening, any evening, would suggest a patient etherized upon a table. In vain, I simply wasn't able. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh my and so, <laughs> I definitely feel like they—they they felt like they were at odds with this this figure who seemed to be deliberately trying to subvert the things that they held dear in terms, right, of, in terms of tradition. Right. But what I would argue is is that yes, Eliot converted later in life and he became maybe more in line with their worldview. But that even in his early days that he was more amenable to their view than they would have given him credit for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I know he says in this response to Chesterton's evaluation of Eliot and the new generation of, of kind of younger poets, he says, we are not all so completely immersed in ignorance, prejudice as and heresy as Mr. Chesterton assumes. He seems always to assume that what his reader previously believed is exactly the opposite of what Mr. Chesterton knows to be true. <laughs> and I think it's really funny because in some ways Chesterton and... Eliot have a lot in common. Like way before Eliot's conversion, he writes this essay, which he becomes very famous for, called Tradition and the Individual Talent, where he talks about what it means to be a writer, and particularly a writer within a canon of writers and within a literary history of writers. And he actually argues the point that poets are best when they are like other poets in the past (laughs) and he says just
1: inherit what they've already sort of done well
0: yeah he says when we praise a poet upon those aspects of his work in which he least resembles anyone else we endeavor to find that which can be isolated in order to be enjoyed Whereas, if we approach a poet without this prejudice, we shall often find that it is not only the best, but the most individual parts of his work may be those in which the dead poets, his ancestors, assert their immortality most vigorously. And he goes on to talk about this like historical sense of... Of tradition, and he says the historical sense involves a perception not only of the pastness of the past but of its presence. The historical sense compels a man to write not merely with his own generation in his bones but with a feeling that the whole of the literature of Europe from Homer and within it the whole of the literature of his own country has a simultaneous existence and composes a simultaneous order. This historical sense, which is a sense of the timeless as well as of the temporal, and the Timeless and of the temporal together is what makes a writer traditional, and it is at the same time what makes a writer most acutely conscious of the place and time of his own contemporaneity. To me that's Chesterton giving giving the votes to your dead ancestors, (laughs) not dismissing their opinion by virtue of them being dead.
1: Yeah, precisely. I I think what's I, I mentioned this earlier today, but what's kind of impressive in that is is that Whereas Chesterton and Lewis might have maybe reacted against the style immediately for maybe feeling like it was adventurous for the sake of being adventurous, not actually holding on to what was already valuable and working totally fine in prior mm-hmm. styles. I, I think you're right in saying it's merely a difference in expression to start, but that in its roots, um, it still has so much shared or in common or, or thematically mutual between these like these former former styles and former artists. Um yeah, at least for me, I also see that the those sort of eternal themes present in proof rock. Where though maybe it is a bit dramatic and not straight to the point as, as C.S. Lewis or Chesterton might be. I don't mind that so much, and perhaps it's just a difference as to what people were looking for. I mean, yeah. that was sort of his critique of Chesterton at the time was that he already assumes that this what this person really meant. It's just the opposite of what he believes, right? Yeah. And rather than just at, or, or looking at it for what it is.
0: Yeah, and then I think it's beautiful to see how that, those relationships grew over time. Right, and exactly. He became friends with Chesterton, and interestingly, he met Lewis because they were both involved with um, <laughs> revising the Psalter, <laughs> and they met at Lambeth, and he has this quote from a, an essay called Thoughts After Lambeth, and Eliot says, the world is trying the experiment of attempting to form a civilized but non-Christian mentality, The experiment will fail, but we must be very patient in awaiting its collapse, meanwhile redeeming the time so that the faith may be preserved alive through the dark ages before us to renew and rebuild civilization and to save the world from suicide." I think that's a side of Eliot that you don't really see, that he does have a despair of the modern world, and he does engage with the modern world in the way that he writes. But what he's trying to say is that, in some ways, the modern project of removing faith Mm -hmm. and Christianity Mm -hmm. from society is what is sort of shattering the world at its core. Mm -hmm.
1: I think that was uh, what we were talking about before, about how he, he can share so much with the other modern authors of his day in terms of understanding or sharing a view of uh, what, what I called like the diagnosis of the times you know um, mm-hmm. of, of the of the problems that are, are are new to this era of existence but the difference as you've described is what he sees as the outlet from there on out you know um, mm-hmm. what is what is the end of even identifying these things is it merely to despair or to complain or to really do anything but find hope in the end. And I think you're, you're, you're right in saying that over time, as he grows older, he has a sense in which, though there may be a decay occurring at the moment, there's a sense in which we are called at the moment to try to preserve what we can through the, the as he put the, the the coming dark ages, which yeah, I'm not sure that you could say every other modernist offers you such an outlet beyond either um, focusing on the self or... Mm-hmm. Maybe like a certain nihilism in a way.
0: Yeah. Um, I think actually maybe because we need to round up our our wonderful conversation. But I think there's actually a quote which kind of sums all of this up. And it brings it right at the end to our our theme (laughs) of time, which is really fitting. And it's from a poem called Courses from The Rock. He says, why should men love the church? Why should they love her laws? She tells them of life and death and of all that they would forget. She is tender where they would be hard, and hard where they would like to be soft. She tells them of evil and sin and unpleasant facts. They constantly try to escape from the darkness outside and within, by dreaming of systems so perfect that no one will need to be good. But the man that is will shadow the man that pretends to be, and the son of man is crucified, always. I mean, what a, a <laughs> an unexpected line from Always. from from Eliot. I really love that sense that we're trying to dream up systems mm-hmm. so
1: perfect that and no one will need to be good. Yeah. I I love that line or the two lines. But the man that is will shadow the man that pretends to be, in which it, I feel like there's a recognition that. Yeah, you, you were, we're aiming through these projects, through these um, these systems to be like gods in a way, where we're, mm-hmm. we're sort of past the problems that our, our mortal frames sort of carry with them. But that in doing so, you really are just pretending like you, you're in a way a puppet trying to stand on its own or, or, or something a little less um, problematic as that. But I think for him the journey that he's had is more understanding himself and his relationship to, as as Catholics and Christians say, our creator, right? Yeah. Like the creature to the creator. And that for me, that is that returning to the origins and seeing it a completely new life. Yeah, but it's so hard to see that unless you can convey it. And that's why his poetry is needed, you know? Yeah you need a beautiful way to convey that truth
0: so that's what we're saying everyone should read Elliot please I hope that this discussion has inspired at least someone to to check him out where they might have otherwise left him off as just another modernist right yeah but thank you so much for coming on Shane I've been dying to do this bit, <laughs> do, do an episode on Elliot so I'm just so grateful to have you on and have this discussion of I, course I, I really it, loved it I hope
1: it was sufficient there's there's so many topics that I feel like it can get kind of just so cluttered because there's so many things you could jump into you know whether yeah. it's his poetry itself or his life or the, the people he was around, you know. Yeah. Maybe if I can advise our readers, like ignore the stuff about his like or not ignore, but be careful about the stuff about his uh his, his personal life on the side. You know yeah. what I mean? Because it can be distracting if you're just going at it for the shock and awe value that some of the articles I've seen.
0: Yeah, certainly. But, he had a quite a complex personal life, but I saw one article which said <laughs> n- nobody was as hard on on Elliot as Elliot himself at his best <laughs> was on himself. I think that's a good name. Um yeah. and I think that's that's really key to understanding and that's where you come back to this humility and that like that he comes back to his own humility in all of this but yeah no I really loved it thanks so much of course thank you and I have one last question to ask you oh boy <laughs> what, what are you enjoying at the moment
1: oh I mentioned having read the portal of the mystery of hope by Charles Bickey, which is not a particularly novel work among, like, um, theological aesthetic groups. But mm-hmm. if you haven't read it or haven't heard of it, I highly recommend it. It's oddly a similar style to Eliot, though. It was written by a Frenchman around the time of World War One, just after, or just before World War One, I, I believe. I could be wrong, but around that time, maybe maybe after. And he has this same style of of repeating things and sort of speaking in a way that is fragmented but is underpinned by a common theme. Mm. I would say more, but I just recommend going and reading it and learning a little bit about its background. It's a great piece.
0: Great. The mystery of hope wonderful I will say the thing I'm enjoying at the moment I haven't finished it yet which is ridiculous because it's actually a middle grade book but <laughs> I just haven't had a huge amount of time for reading but um, I'm reading a book called The Letter for the King by a Dutch author called Tonke Dracht mm. there's really beautiful all of the editions are they're published by a publisher called Pushkin Press and they have, <laughs> don't get too lost in their catalogue they do really beautiful books but there's um, I love in particular I got their hardback gift set and they're just really lovely but it's a, a very kind of in some ways simple, straightforward, I'm going to say Arthurian, it's not actually Arthurian, I just mean that kind of era, that sort of chivalric era Mm -hmm. of a quest of a a knight who, or he's not even a knight he he is about to become a knight and he's not supposed to open the door of the chapel until the next morning when he (laughs) will become a knight when someone knocks on the door and gives him a letter that he has to hurry away with and and embark on this quest to deliver this letter. Mm -hmm. And and, you know in some ways that that narrative is really straightforward and simple and, and at least so far it hasn't really done the whole thing of like subverting or kind of Hmm. challenging your expectations but what it it does is do that narrative really nicely and clearly and in a very simple, fresh way. And there are even some references to God and and, and Christ and he disguises himself as a monk and mm-hmm. but it's just a very a kind of a distilled version of those stories, which is quite nice to read. Um, sounds really lovely. Yeah. Very relaxing. So that's Letter for the King by Tonka Dracht. Um, <laughs> I want to spell that out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah that's T-O-N-K-E-D-R-A-G-T. I would not have got that. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it'll be in the show notes. By the way, I, I put show notes on this and mm-hmm. I I do make sure to try and put as much much information there as possible, them, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you are looking for anything, please look there because I don't want all of my work to be in vain. <laughs> I'm glad you said so. Uh, other than that, of course, we want to wish you guys. I think it will be the start of Lent by the time this comes out. Ooh! Uh, I hope everyone's Lenten resolutions are going well with all due humility and uh, we're working our way now from from Lent towards Easter Mm -hmm. so it's always a very special liturgical time. Other than that, just want to thank everyone for listening and of course like I said, tweet at us, get in touch share the podcast, all of those great things and we'll be talking to you in a couple of weeks Goodbye! Thank you, bye This has been Risking Enchantment Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson, and you can find out more about me and the podcast at Rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.